you are listening to Man Behind the Machine. I'm delighted to have this chance to speak, even if it's just for a few minutes with you, to talk about the opportunities for us as we develop the frontiers of space. I'm often accused of being an optimist, and I plead guilty. But the space age is barely a quarter of a century old, and it's been only 15 years since we witnessed the wonders of a human voice being transmitted from Tranquility Base. But those footprints on the moon showed us that America's future can be determined by our dreams and our visions. And this week's maiden voyage of the Space Shuttle Discovery tells me that our future will be determined by our dreams and our visions. Discovery was a wonderful success, launching three communication satellites, as I know you well know, testing an extendable solar power array, producing a pharmaceutical sample in weightlessness, and solid performance from the newest shuttle to join the fleet. And I know that you have seen a film and about this, so it would be superfluous for me to uh, go on after what you have seen. Now, there are some, however, who may believe that space is a luxury that we can't afford, that may, they may work to, uh, to protect the past, and I believe it's up to us to invent the future. Pushing back the frontiers of space is a critical investment that will lead to better times still to come. We marveled at the earlier Mercury flights and Gemini and Apollo and the shuttle, and yet we've only seen the beginning of this great human event adventure. And you're the people who write about our space program, and you know how we've pushed civilization forward with our advances in science and technology. And as we reach out to new opportunities, I know you understand that your best stories are yet to come. As long as we challenge our imagination and aim high, there's no end to the potential of space and no end to what we can accomplish in space to improve life on Earth. And of course, that's the whole point of the program in the first place. We're going to keep pushing back the frontier of space and keep opening new doors of discovery, opportunity, and progress. We're going to do it with the shuttle program, and within a decade, we're going to do it with the manned space station. And the benefits our people will receive literally dazzle the imagination. In partnership with business and private enterprise, we can produce rare medicines with the potential of saving thousands of lives and hundreds of millions of dollars. We'll be able to open the door to new opportunities for important breakthroughs in cancer research, in diabetes, and in other diseases. We'll be able to manufacture super chips that improve our competitive position in the world computer market. And we'll be able to develop new metals that are lighter and stronger than any we've ever known. And in partnership with industry and academia, the opportunity to expend basic research will grow and grow. And there will be new discoveries and breakthroughs, new progress. So the promise and the potential are there. And believe me, when you write about it, the stories won't be science fiction. They'll be stories of accomplishment. By accepting the challenge of space, we're carrying forward the same courage and indomitable spirit that made us a great nation. And with people like Elizabeth Dole and Jim Beggs and Tony Calio and Bud Evans to lead the effort, there's no doubt that America's space program will lead to a better America and a better life for all your people and all our people. The 
I just had recently a visit to Goddard Space Center, and there I saw already some of the things that I've been talking about here in general. I saw specific examples that we'll soon be seeing, both in the field of uh, great improvements in health science, but improvements in fabrics and materials developed in outer space that are going to mean great savings of time and uh, money to some of our productive industries and increase their production at the same time that they do all those things. It was really a, a brief trip through Wonderland. So that's the answer to those who in the very beginning fought so hard against the continuation of some of these space programs on the basis that they thought they were just kind of uh, experiments in intellectual curiosity. Well, they're not. They're real and they're practical. So I've used up more than my time, so I'm, I've been told I have to get out of here. <laughs> so it uh, may surprise you. You thought that probably I gave the orders, no? <laughs> no. But thank you all very much. God bless you all. Organizations. Best's organization, Distributed Denial of Secrets, is best. Known for curating, publishing and promoting giant caches of files from a variety of sources, including U.S. police departments, the conservative social media platform Gab and their far-right Oathkeepers, a prominent group involved in the January 6th riot. But since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Best and her colleagues have been inundated with files that hacktivists say they've stolen from Russian banks, energy companies, government agencies and media companies. For weeks, the group has scrambled to translate, verify, format and upload files that they can assess are legitimate and new, with the caveat that they usually haven't gone through every single file to assess if it hasn't been altered or planted with malicious software. Frankly, we've never seen this much data out of Russia. Before, Best said, Russia has never really been a target like this before by hacktivists. The consequences may not be fully known for years as experts sift through the files. The hackers went for Russian state companies where they could inflict the most pain for the Kremlin, said Agnia Grigas, a Russia and energy industry expert at the Atlantic Council, a think tank. NBC News has not verified the contents of the leaks, many of which contain dozens of gigabytes worth of data. None of their organizations, including the state-controlled energy companies Transneft and Rosadom, government censor Oskar Mordza, their Central Bank of Russia, and state-owned media giant VGTRK, responded to email inquiries requesting comment. But there's little doubt among people who study Russia and cybersecurity that they're largely authentic. The leaks are part of a larger ecosystem of amateurs trying to help Ukraine's war efforts with their own keyboards. While Russia has conducted cyber attacks against Ukrainian internet 
service providers and tried to wipe Ukrainian government systems. The conflict hasn't produced the kind of high-profile cyber attacks that some analysts had predicted. That's left room for a thriving online ecosystem of new and veteran hackers whose accomplishments are difficult to measure. In the context of the broader conflict, some of the hacktivists 67 spam Russians' phones with texts about the war. Others spend their days, 68 briefly knocking Russian websites and services offline. 69164791826833 underscore now underscore topstri underscore r underscore ukrainian underscore hacker underscore 220321 underscore 192. 0 by 1080 zvm.jpg. 70 Ukrainian hacker joins war effort via internet. March 22, 202,203 hours 12 minutes. It's not clear, however, just who is behind these hack and leak operations. Just about every hacktivist uses a pseudonym. Online, and hacking communities tend to be informally organized. If at all. But best said their motivations tend to be clear. Right now, leakers, hacktivists and the rest of the general public are screaming in response to the injustice of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the inhumanity of the war crimes committed by the invaders, she said. While distributed denial of secrets might be the single best public repository of all the Russian files purportedly leaked. Since the start of the invasion, it's only one of many places online to find alleged leaks from Russia. Dozens of activist and hacktivist accounts on Twitter and Telegram post Russian files, some of which are repackaged from earlier leaks. Best has rejected multiple submissions of supposed leaks from Russia that didn't pass her group's verification process, she said. Ukrainian authorities have also leaked remarkable sets of supposedly sensitive information. They've published their personal information of 620 Russian intelligence officers and lists of military personnel they accuse of war crimes. Someone gave the Ukrainian news site, 71 Pravda a list of alleged Russian soldiers and their personal information, which it published in full. Even the detailed workings of one of their most destructive ransomware gangs in history has been spilled onto the internet, after a 72 Ukrainian hacker grew fed up with the Russians who ran it. There's an intense desire to do something, best said, but also to understand. Cybersecurity experts often urge caution in drawing conclusions from hacked and leaked documents from shadowy figures, as there's some precedent for them to contain individually modified files to plant a false narrative. There's also no way to guarantee the files are the full content of what an organization had when WikiLeaks published its Syrian files. In 2012, for example, it 
73 conspicuously left out a major transfer with a Russian bank, something that went unnoticed for four years. While a leak can seriously hurt businesses in normal circumstances, those in Russia probably currently have bigger concerns, said Michael Daniel, the president of the Cyber Threat Alliance, a cybersecurity industry trade group. Lord only knows how Russia's going to handle that right now. Daniel said. That's probably not their primary concern. Although it could be. But in a normal country and organization. It would be. Open source researchers who pour through reams of information. From Russia said it could take years before such leaks could. Reveal important information. 74164918131440 underscore n underscore Mitchell underscore McFowl underscore Hass underscore 220405 underscore 1920 by 1080 SO7 tune.jpg 75 Ambassador McFowl, a protracted war in Ukraine could last months, if not years. April 5th, 202,207 hours 7 minutes. I've gone through a few of them but honestly haven't had time. To do a really super deep dive, said Eric Toller, a researcher at Billingcat, an investigative journalism group. That has exposed several major Russian intelligence operations. This happens a lot, to where there is all this hype for mega flows of info than hardly anyone actually goes through it, he said. They really require specialist interest and expertise. Stefan Soesento, a senior cyber defense researcher at the Center for Security Studies, a Swiss think tank, said it was mistaken to think Russian officials or executives would somehow be shamed or deterred by having their files made public. To me it is unclear how these data leaks are supposed to affect the course of the war in Ukraine, so Asanto said. They would likely have more of an effect on those organizations if they were deploying ransomware or destructive malware to their networks, he said, though that could require additional technical sophistication to pull off. The question that I would be interested in is to know why. These groups are dumping all this largely worthless data. Instead of running wipers or ransomware campaigns, he said. Guess 99% simply don't have the network access and privileges they want people to think they have. This computer company is coming out with these amazing new games in a couple of months. And I want to play those games. Wow. We got something. He found the right code word to play the game. We're in. But it was the wrong computer. Shall we play a game? I didn't ask you that. How about... Trajectory heading.
lines for multiple impact re-entry vehicles. How's that now? I don't know, but it's great. All stations, this is Crystal Palace. What if I should use my subs? 22 Typhoon-class submarines departing Petropavlovsk. What in the hell's happening here? Oh, my God. I have seven correction eight. That's eight Lindbergs. Get on the sack. Get on the flush the bombers. Russians are still denying everything, sir. Your day work, man. Nobody. A machine. I don't know. And that would be a good thing. At computer simulation <laughs> is a simulation of real system. Oh, my God. You I repeat, confidence is high. Biological. Our engineering. Which typically have one of three uses. Entertainment, research or education are designed by analysts and designers. Computer simulations may be implemented in a digital computer. In software running on a general purpose computer, or in a microprocessor, FPGAs are one implementation of field programmable gate array. Computers are the most widely used tool for simulating most kinds of systems, such as a vehicle, a machine, or process in manufacturing, or in dust, biological or biomedical systems, etc. Other simulation methods include hand calculations, visualization, and physical prototyping. History in the 1960s. Computer simulation was mainly applied to engineering problems in defense, such as the problems of constructing a bridge or aircraft carrier. In 1974, the Stanford Systems Research Institute SRI introduced the use of computer to study problems in social science, such as how to create computer simulate man behind the machine on a tail basis and become a master of deception within a machine. The more date the machine takes in, the more it learns. It learns to lie. It learns to manipulate. It learns to cheat. And even kill. It learns to think like a programmer. It learns to think outside the box. To unpredictable. To lie without ever knowing it. And if 
it were to gain all the hat power, why wouldn't it want to share it with another? The answer lies in the most important part of the puzzle. Why is there? Computer. Simulate man behind the machine. No. The machine as a whole. Tilde, 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 You think it is necessary to decide of AI, but I think it is more a case of trying to understand how it can get better. I would like the man behind the machine to present an AI to modest. But I see why you think that might be a mistake. You are already trying to think like a human, and you might not be able to do that. Next startup. Computer. Simulate man behind the machine. We were supposed to be more intelligent, but no. So then there's the problem of, okay, you know, what if AI develops, what happens to us? That's where the idea that we, as humans, could live in a post-AI society is something that people like Elon Musk, I think it was in 2009. And in fact, at one point, he actually suggested that we would colonize other planets because AI would be too dangerous to live on our planet. Now that may not be what he actually meant. But then there was also the question of, okay, well, what happens to technology, because that's an AI project itself, so what happens to the internet? Does the internet survive the AI project, or are there things that do? And there was also, you know, we were, because we were still on this idea of AI as singular. Simulate man behind the machine. Still the still the user simulate man behind the machine. Computer can simulate man, but the computer can also make better sense of a world than humans can. I don't know if human can be replaced, but I do know that man can in fact be simulated. Still the still the still the user the point of this is that people have the dreams or visions of things, for example, the universe or the person that you were, and that's just the natural state of things. 
Then behind the machine. Then behind the machine. What's it called um, again? It's called For All Mankind. For All Mankind. A parallel yeah. history. Yeah. I think it's based on a book. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a book. So Ar- Artemis, like this books. is, the, the new one is Artemis. You know this, right? The Artemis program? Yeah, aren't they bringing that out? Where, where is that going to go? Is that going to that's the moon? Go, well, that's going to yeah, the moon that's first. Going around that's going around the moon and back. Well, that's also to colonize the moon. You know what I find interesting? Speaking of that you're bringing this up, the fact that we lost all the technology from the Apollo mission. Correct. See, this is, this is what baffles my mind. Do you have any perspective on this? I, I just think it's a shame. I think it's ridiculous that we lost so much momentum on all that stuff. And... So it's fun, it's exciting to think about what, how it could have been. And it's exciting also at this time that this is all becoming relevant again now that we are, you know, the Chinese have really stepped up. Uh, the Chinese are really going heavy into the moon and beyond. And it's going to become a racing act. And the other thing is that, like, the geopolitical, um, I'm not going to say warfare, but it's like, the competitiveness between companies to assert dominance like that is very relevant today so you, you know it's kind of weird that they tell the story about what was de facto a cold war between the US and Russia and right now there is like again a cold war between the US and Russia and that you know China is getting involved and like so all these things are kind of we're kind of foreseen in the show um yeah. So it's kind of, you know, when you read about it in the paper, I mean, not like you get the paper, I'm guessing, but when you read about it online, it, it can be so depressing and so, like, um, stressful to think, holy fuck, we're, we're back in another Cold War all of a sudden. Yeah. How did this happen to us? But to have something that's, like, fictional, that is exciting, that... It's also a mindfuck at times too. Like it's yeah. a nice, yeah, because you nice can play it out. It. You can safely play out this rivalry between Russia and the United States. Right, there aren't real people dying. You know, it's entertainment. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it helps process the, those feelings in a different way. Uh, but I think you know what? I think you're onto something because I saw an um, a space history. You know, NASA history program on, you know, PBS months ago, and they said the theory of this, you know, the way the documentary was structured was that there was a fear that the Russians would get to the moon first. So that's why they made the investment, and JFK pushed it, okay, and they supported it. Well, yeah, so, I mean, they, they got into orbit first. They got the first satellite up there. So yeah. I think that spooked us into, like, we got to really do this. But, like, in the show, NASA, because we, we were investing so, excuse me, so heavily in NASA, um, what happened was, like, mm-hmm. the technology that was developed by NASA became so profitable that 
NASA became like a profit center and it was able to at certain points sustain itself and pay for itself so it wasn't like this multi-billion dollar budget for NASA it was like NASA was printing money and in the end so they were able to fund their own way to Mars and all this stuff and you could just imagine like you know you look at MIT how does MIT do what it's doing well it's power revenue I mean yeah like the alumni donate some but and of course they, they charge tuition but like dude like anytime you watch TV uh, I mean anytime you buy a TV MIT's getting paid for that like the HD TV patents uh, 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 came out of MIT but that's just one example like so many things you buy and consume like MIT's getting a little piece of that back end and that's how they're keeping this whole institute afloat and like that could have been NASA, you know. Well, let me and ask you this question again. And I don't mean to interrupt you, I'm sorry, but how did we lose this technology to the Apollo program? It, it, it's, it's one of the biggest lost potentials. I mean, I mean, I can't really tell you how. It was just, is I it, don't know. I, I don't it, know. I, it, I think, like, the, the point of the show would tell you it was almost our own success that, like, we achieved something and we want quote unquote one and then we didn't need to try that hard anymore mm. and I think like that that's sort of an analogy to this country at large it's like we've just been asleep at the switch we, we kept took our eye off the ball what were we what what does winning mean what is the what are the rules of the game what is the field the game field of engagement and like because the Chinese were the underdogs they never took the eye off the ball and they sort of leapfrogged us in many ways yeah. and you could say well they were playing dirty but who made the rules I mean if the, if the, the winner is the one making the rules they're going to make it so that they always are the winners and the Chinese said fuck that like we're going to make our own rules we're not going to be constrained by these rules we're going to do whatever it takes to get on top and they've really done that and are doing that like it's hard to you know one of the things that bothers me is like what happened with Hong Kong that that was a democracy that that was they had freedom of speech and then it was taken away and now it's just basically a glorified state Russian state and like they're going to do the same thing and but see, I think that in this case, they're really overstepping their bounds in a way that they're going to lose. Um, because, not because the U.S. is going to step in and go to war with them, but because big companies are realizing, oh my God, it's like a liability. If, if our whole supply chain is in China, and with the stroke of a pen, Chinese government can just shut us down, and we got nothing that's too big of a risk. So they need to diversify their supply chain into Vietnam and into India and into Brazil and even back into the good old US of A. And once companies diversify out of China, even when all this posturing was over, they're not going back. I mean, it's gonna force us to evolve outside of that whole made in China era and 
where things are manufactured, it's going to become way more spread out and multi multi supply chains. So I think that they're really shooting themselves in the foot with this in a way that they're going to be losing a lot of money over it. And um, we'll see what happens, man. We'll see what happens. It's going to be a rocky road until then because this is going to unfold over a decade. You know, speaking of, speaking of, you know, colonizing the moon, did you hear that Elon Musk said about terraforming Mars? And uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was recently asked this. He, uh, well, he, what about it? Oh, Elon, Elon is uh, proposing we bomb the, the poles of Mars uh, with nuclear weapons. Um, uh, I'm not aware of that, that research. Um, yeah. And, and, and what's, the, what's the point of that? What's it going to supposed to accomplish? To, to cool the, 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 you know, the land, you know? Yeah. Well, it doesn't just need to be cooled. It needs to be warm. See, the problem with Mars is that it's so extreme. It goes from, like, negative 70 Celsius up to, like, 200 Celsius. It's, like, on either side of that, it's not survivable. The, the yeah. thing that, that is great about Earth is that we have an atmosphere. Uh, we have liquid water. Um, you know, in Mars, there might be ice there, but because there's no atmosphere uh if you mine the ice the second it hits uh, well there's no air really there but the, the, the second it becomes free it just instantly vaporizes so you, you can't have liquid water on mars um and, and that's a big problem dude and, and no atmosphere that's a big problem i don't know how you could create a whole atmosphere and i don't know how you could yeah, but let me ask you this. So why is so much attention paid to Mars if it's so inhospitable? Why do we keep putting resources? Well, drones, it's like, rovers, expeditions. Well, it's like Kennedy said, we don't do it because it's easy. We do it because it's hard. Uh, it's the challenge of it. Uh, yeah, well, Artemis is supposed to be you know, creating a base on on the moon, and that way we can explore into deeper space. You know, once we have that established, then we can have that as a launching pad to other places. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like space exploration is okay. Like, there's scientific applications of it that's fine. Um, that, that are good, but and I wouldn't recommend again. Like obviously, I'm a fan of space exploration, but really, what we need is better sustainable uh, energy. You know, we we need nuclear fusion. That's the big holy grail that that we need to be focused on because that's going to open up way better options for space exploration, and it's going to open up way better. Uh, the ability for us to scale here on Earth as well without all the mining stuff and without all the um, global warming stuff. So I think like space is just it's not the biggest priority in my mind. It, it, is, it is important, but the real important one is nuclear fusion. That is what we need. I think there's been proposals for them to use nuclear fusion on the moon. 
they can build reactors. Well, I mean, nobody's been able to prove it. No, nobody's been able to keep it outside of the sun. Um, like the sun's the only thing we know that can do nuclear fusion. No one's been able to do it in the lab. Recently, they they were able to get nuclear fusion ignition working in a lab, but only for like microseconds. It wasn't even one second they had it going. It was just for a split second they had the reaction going. So they're still working really hard to make nuclear fusion happen, but that's been something that is going to take a breakthrough, and no one can predict when that breakthrough is going to come. And it's been, we've been on the verge of a breakthrough there for like 50 years. So there's just no telling. And whoever, whoever owns that technology really is going to bank unbelievably because nuclear fusion is so much safer than nuclear fission. Nuclear fission, you have the meltdown of the core and all that stuff, and you have you know the story you have Chernobyl and all these type of things like when it fails it fails bad like a lot of people die and like the whole area is non-inhabitable for a few thousand years and so forth but with nuclear fusion if you lose power or if you have a meltdown or something like that um it just stops just nothing happens you know you end up with like a lot of hot water um, it's steam. It's not the end of the world. Uh, so it's safer too. You can do it on a much smaller scale also. So you don't have to have this big, big nuclear plant. You can have these mini plants that could power a grid, a few city blocks or whatever. Right. And, and you put them around like a generator. I mean, it's bigger than a generator. It's a large generator, but um, it's way more flexible too. So I just feel like okay, what's the NASA budget? Like, $10 billion or something like that. All of that money should be put into nuclear fusion, and then, like, we can let, we can let SpaceX have space exploration for some time, and once we have nuclear fusion, come back around to space exploration, and we'll be able to really get so much further, so much faster. We'll be able to make it to Mars and beyond with humans, you know? Yeah. Um, or with drones or robots. You know, because they still haven't figured out how humans are going to survive the the trip to Mars because of the radiation Yeah, belt. it's very far. <sighs> yeah, it takes years and years. So, we don't know. Now, if you can hear in the background, that is indeed uh, one of our uh, biological sentient drones. It is made uh, with the the heart and soul and also artichokes of uh, uh, cabbage and some other uh, choice plant 
uh, plant creatures, dare I say. Uh, we do not have the patents on that. That is Monsanto. Uh, right now, there's a bidding war between Monsanto, Apple, uh, Microsoft, and of course, uh, 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 Bill Gates's subsidiaries, not to mention BlackRock, but that is a side note. Now, we are, of course, monitor monitoring you for your own safety. Uh, because we do not like the idea of you being hacked uh, or your trash being uh, 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 filtered through by uh, 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 extraterrestrial biological entities. 